Hi, it's Rebecca Whitman, your host of the Balanced, Beautiful, and Abundant Show. I'm a top-rated life coach, an international best-selling author, and a multi-passionate entrepreneur. I'm on a mission to help you go from burned out to balanced, beautiful, and abundant. The experts on this show will help you achieve work-life balance so that you can experience abundance in seven pillars of life, spirituality, health, emotions, romance, mindset, social, and financial life. When you have all seven pillars of life in alignment, you are balanced, beautiful, and abundant. Let's go. Hello, comedy. Welcome to the Balanced, Beautiful, and Abundant show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited for you to be here. And this show is all about taking people from burned out and overwhelmed to balanced, beautiful, and abundant. I'm your host, Rebecca Whitman. Welcome to the show. We are on three platforms. We're going live on Zoom, Facebook, and Instagram. So if you're on Facebook or Instagram watching it live, you know, say where you're from and we'd love to greet you. I am so excited to hear about your origin story, Comedy. How did you get into this uh, life coaching space? Uh, You know, honestly, Rebecca, it was not a linear path for me. I went the traditional route. I went into business. I was part of the dot-com industry, became a project manager, um, and through that process, actually started working with managing resources. So not just time for projects, but actual resources, human resources. Um, From there, I went on to manage my husband's law firm. He started his own law firm. So I stepped in to manage it. And in that role, really took on the responsibilities of helping his employees figure out who they wanted to be both professionally. And then it leaned into the personal side of things too. Uh, At the same time of running the law practice, I was going through my own self-transformation. And what I mean by that is I am a recovering people-pleasing perfectionist. Um, So as I was going through the process of managing the firm, I'm also the mom of five. And what I started seeing in some of in my middle child, especially, were, were those people-pleasing tendencies and those perfectionist tendencies. And that was an awakening for me. That was my catalyst to recognize that I had some self-work to do. And that wait, if I didn't... Wait, yeah. wait, back up. You threw away a mom of five, like, yeah, everyone's <laughs> a mom of five. Like, that is a major lifestyle. So how you have five kids and yes. how old are they? And then I totally forgot to intro you. So that'll segue into... My intro, and then you can pick up where you left off. So I definitely, <laughs> you're in sure. But wait, mama five, like mama five. Okay. So my, my oldest is, my oldest is 21. She's actually a professional ballerina. I have a 19 year old who is playing division one lacrosse right now uh, at school, a 16 year old, 13 year old, and a nine year old. Now, is this like a religious thing? Is this a lifelong dream? Is this like lack of This is like life happens. <laughs> life happens. Is it like a lot of intimacy with your husband and you're playing the numbers game? Like five kids is not common in our generation. So what what happened there? Did your husband always want a big family? Like you know, it's really interesting. My husband's actually one of four. Um, I'm one of two. So I personally would only imagine two or three kids. And right. then I always joke, it's like life happens, you know, and 
you know, they're all blessings, honestly. <laughs> Our youngest one um, is definitely the, um, you know, the the culmination. Like she definitely embodies all of her siblings all in one. So it's actually pretty cool to see. <laughs> I think we should do a whole podcast episode on how to keep your marriage spicy enough to generate five kids. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on with you and your husband to have five kids. <laughs> so let's talk about your bio. Yes, so- yes. So Kamini Wood is the creator of Authentic Me and the CEO of Live Joy Your Way, a coaching company that's that's helping high performers create self-awareness. She helps them redefine success and shift from external to internal validation. She is trained in cognitive behavioral coaching, and she is able to help clients navigate through traumatic and toxic relationships. So that gives my audience a background. And now to continue your origin story. So you were at the law firm. Yes. It was working not- with individuals, working yeah. with individuals on a professional basis, right? And then I was also at the same time going through my own self-work and recognizing where I was holding myself back with most people-pleasing tendencies. And my perfectionism also held me back in the sense of maybe keeping me from really stepping out into my own, my my own sphere, wanting to really step out into the limelight from behind the scenes. Um, so as I went through that transformation and coupled with my professional experience, I realized that that was actually my calling to work with people, to help them see what their true inner power was, to see where they might be holding themselves back. So that's when I went and did some specialty certification, not just in life coaching, but I, I really did different modalities of coaching and wanted to understand how to maybe work with people from that cognitive side. And then, of course, um, I've done some act-based coaching as well. Um, And then recently have added somatic work into what I do because sometimes we have to take that bottom-up approach. We can't always go from the cognitive space because if we are truly stuck in our false beliefs, it's very difficult at times to be able to think through that. You know, we've got to actually come to a place of, of like that connection with our own self, our own body, get out of that fight or flight state, right? Bring our prefrontal cortex back online. And from that space, then be able to make the shifts that we need to. So anyway, long-winded answer to your question, (laughs) but that's, that's how I ended up where I am. I love that because somatic for my audience members who might not know is body moving the body and getting therapy through movement and cognitive is it's not just your thoughts, it's taking action first, and then your thoughts follow the action. So I'm big into the 12 steps and that the 12 steps have a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy where you just have smart feet, you show up at the meetings, you do the step work. And before you know it, your feelings catch up with your action. So I I love cognitive. I am also a recovering people pleaser and a recovering perfectionist. And I feel that a big part of my recovery, which I continue to cultivate on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. is self-compassion. So what is self-compassion in your view? So um, self-compassion, from my perspective, is a a couple different things. One, it's kindness over judgment. As perfectionists, we will immediately go to what the inner critic wants to say about a choice that we've made. So it's really coming to a place of giving oneself grace and understanding that if something didn't occur or uh, end up the way that we anticipated it to, 
instead of allowing the inner critic to run the show and tell us how we failed or we're not good enough, it's really coming from a place of what did I learn? How can I gain information from this experience? And how can I take that and move that forward? So that's number one. It's really coming to this place of offering us that same grace that we most often will offer to other people. It's giving ourselves that same grace. The second part that I think is really important with self-compassion is the concept of common humanity. And what that really means is that there are several people in our world who've had similar experiences. So often as a perfectionist, we will isolate and think that we're the only one that's experiencing this. And it doesn't just happen to perfectionists. I think us as humans tend to fall into this idea that we're the only ones experiencing this. And then we feel completely alone. And so through self-compassion, we come to this understanding that there are others who have had similar experiences and we can seek out those people and we can ask them for their own um, take on the experiences. So it's not that they are telling us what to do or what to think, but it's recognizing that we can talk about the thing that we're going through or we don't have to do it in hiding. Um, And then of course, the third part of self-compassion is just being in this present moment. So as a high achiever, I tend to future uh, future trip where it's like, oh, what's going to happen? Let me plan for that. Let me control what's going to happen in the future. And then I think a lot of us deal with the rumination of the past. And so when we're really practicing self-compassion, it's to notice what may have happened in the past and come to this place of acceptance of what's happened has happened. We can't go and do it. And we don't have control over what's going to happen in the future. What we have is our here and now. And so being present in our here and now is how we can make the best choice for ourselves going forward. So we can come to this place of kindness over judgment, recognize that there are other people that we can lean on. And then we're here in this moment. What do we choose with our here and now? I love that comedy because the past to me is ruminating over the past is depression Mm-hmm. Eating yourself up, saying woulda, coulda, shoulda. And the future is, like you said, future tripping, catastrophizing, anxious anxiety. Oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, the thoughts that keep you up at night, trying to control the future. The past and the future are fiction. We yes. can't control them, but all we have is the present. So, how do we stay in the present if you're listening? just take the next indicated step. Just what are you doing next? What are you doing after you listen to this podcast? What are you doing next? And then do the next and the next and the next and the next thing. And before you know it, you're doing your day. And when I'm in my day, I'm so happy and joyous. But when I'm in yesterday or tomorrow, it is just not pretty in my head. One of my oh, favorite, absolutely. One of my favorite things I've heard uh, in a meeting is your head is not your homie. So when I'm when I'm in the past or the future, my head is not my homie. But how did you teach your kids this? I mean, you have a a professional ballerina. You have a Division One lacrosse player. It sounds like your kids are all high achievers. Do you think you train them in these? Uh, modalities and thinking this way since they were young and that is be that's why they're high achievers or do you think they were naturally going to be high achievers and you have to teach them to think in a way that makes it more fun for them to achieve because I was a high achiever but it was not fun for me to achieve right I honestly believe that they're naturally high achievers I think that that's just in their their makeup but 
as they went through the process, I absolutely spent time with them and I continue to do it because I continue to do it on myself. I have to do my work. As you mentioned earlier, this is a continually evolution, evolutionary process, right? We're always growing and evolving. And so I do do that with my kids. We have conversations all the time. Um, my daughter being in the ballet world, I mean, that's a very fluid one day is a great day. The next day, not so much. Uh, same thing with lacrosse. We can have a great a great practice and the next day, not a great practice. And so being really, first of all, self-compassionate is huge. Being in the presence is huge. And then recognizing that you can lean on those around you and to build that community so that you have an outlet and you're not going through it all by yourself. Because when we feel isolated is when it's really difficult to move through challenging times. Now, lacrosse is a team sport, so you can more easily lean on your teammates, but ballet, I feel like, is such a solo art form. Even though you're a part of a ballet company, you're dancing and you're by yourself. So how how do you teach your daughter how to rely on community, being that she's a ballerina? You know, it's actually really hard, especially because uh, the performing industry as a whole is very competitive. Um, and so for her, it's been really important to build her own tribe around her. So it's not always within the dance company itself. Yes, you're going to support your company members and they do lean on each other. But for her, it's been really important to build that community outside of just her dance world. And that allows her safe space even outside of her profession. I love that. And I love the quote from Michael Beck with community brings immunity because the more people we have around us to process with and talk to and lean on and people that support us and people that we get to support, the easier it is to have self-compassion. And if I could just treat, like you said, other people with the same grace and kindness and compassion that I should, that I could show myself, then I would have like such an easier way. And that's a great way to shift. If you are struggling with self-compassion or negative self-talk, just try talking to yourself like you are your own best friend or your own kid, and that can really shift things. So that's that's a great tip. So how does self-compassion help us deal with the inner critic, that voice in our head? I know it's always saying you're not good enough. You didn't do it right. Why didn't you do it this way? This person over there is doing it better. How does self-compassion help calm the inner critic? I would say that self-compassion is the antidote to that. So it's really about recognizing and coming to the awareness, naming what the inner critic is saying. And then as we name it, and that's actually really important sometimes to say it out loud, because when we hear it out loud, we can recognize, wow, that's really judgmental or that's really mean. And from that moment, we can then shift into this place of kindness versus just allowing the inner critic to run the show. Because more often than not, those thoughts are running in our in our mind, but until we actually speak it out loud and say it out loud so we can witness it, we have to be our own witness, we just allow it to play, just keep playing on repeat. So if we speak it out loud, we notice it, we name how harsh it is, and we're able to then bring in that self-compassion to shift from this place of judgment into a place of kindness. Do you think meditation or writing or um, certain modalities help with detaching from our thoughts? Because some people are so in their thoughts, they can't separate Mm -hmm. themselves from their own thoughts. So how do you recommend people get detached so they can actually be the observer of their thoughts instead of living their thoughts? 
I do suggest to people that if they can write it out and actually pen to paper, not typing it, but actually pen to paper because the brain has that output channel, that's huge. Now, there are some people who will really push back. And I often say, all of us have these phones that we're attached to. Use the voice recorder and then go back and listen because now you're listening to your own voice and you can actually be the observer of what was just ruminating in your head. Any which way that we can create any of that distance and we can diffuse, right? That's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to diffuse from the thought because what happens is we take on the um, the identity of what that inner critic is saying. And so we need to add that space. And when we give ourselves that space from the thought, now we're stepping into observer mode. So writing, speaking it out loud, speaking it on voice recorder, um, So journaling, absolutely. And then, of course, leaning on your community. When we talk to people about it, then we we have that sense of uh, community to to actually witness us and remind us and then listen to what they're saying and recognize, wow, yeah, that was really judgmental. Maybe I should, not even should, I choose to be kinder to myself. When you have a negative thought comedy that Mm -hmm. is perfectionistic or full of Mm -hmm. self-doubt, what is the first thing you do to shift? Honestly, for me, I speak out loud. I talk to myself all the time. My uh, oldest son actually teases me and says that I need to stop talking to myself so much, but it's very helpful because when I talk to myself, I'm actually giving myself the ability to witness it. And again, that's why for me, it's the go-to. It's the one where I, I need, I need that ability to speak it and hear it because that's when I know either I'm in perfectionist mode or I'm actually even guilting myself or shaming myself. Cause as a people pleaser, I will guilt myself a lot as well. And so when I'm talking and I hear that, I can recognize it pretty quickly now and say, okay, I'm noticing that I'm doing the thing. And from there, make that shift. When you talk out loud, are you talking in your critical voice? Like, oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. Or are you saying the calming, self-compassionate, like, it's okay. It's okay. You're doing the best you can. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Like, is it both? That's a great question. It actually is an evolution. It'll start off being the critical voice. I'll notice it. Then I'll say it in kind of a funny tone because once you have it like a funny tone or a comical tone, now you don't take it as seriously. And then I'll shift into that compassionate, like, all right, it's really okay. It's fine. This is what we picked up from that situation. All right. What's the choice of moving forward? So it's like, it's a step-by-step process. (laughs) That's the honest answer. That's a great answer. (laughs) How does self-compassion affect all areas of your life? So my teachings, comedy, I say there's seven pillars of life. I call them my seven pillars of abundance and they're all connected. Spirituality, fitness, emotions, romance, mindset, social, financial. These are the seven key areas of life. How would self-compassion affect all these areas of life? It absolutely does because we will be, our inner critic pops up wherever, right? So sometimes in our financial world, we will have some type of inner critic that might say something like, I don't deserve, I don't deserve this uh, to, to be in abundance. And that's that limiting belief. And also it's pretty judgmental. And so if we can actually utilize self-compassion in that moment and recognize you know, that we're being judgmental of self, like what I don't deserve what what's really true here. And we can utilize and shift using self-compassion. It happens in health and wellness all the time. The constant criticisms that we, I think as women will put, and, and I've even have men clients who will criticize their body. Am I, 
you know, muscular enough? Am I thin enough? Am I fit enough? Am I whatever? Self-compassion absolutely plays a role. I see this time and time again, especially with those who are recovering from eating disorders, for instance, that they absolutely, if they can utilize self-compassion, it can absolutely play a vital role in the, in the uh, recovery from such a thing. I think women, especially in Western culture, we are trained to be so perfectionistic and wanting to look like the models in the magazines who the models in the magazines don't even look like the models in the magazines. I mean, they are so airbrushed and Photoshopped and, Mm -hmm. but yet we're wanting to look or someone on social media. Right. And those are Mm -hmm. also filtered airbrushed Photoshopped. And how would you tell a woman who is struggling with what I call compare and despairism comparing her insides to other people's outsides and feeling, you know, I'm not pretty, I'm not skinny, I'm not young enough, I'm not hot enough. My body doesn't look like these girls that are getting like a million likes on social media. How would you tell that woman to show herself self-compassion? That is a great question. And actually I teach a social emotional learning class and we actually just had a conversation about social media just last week. Um, And it was brought to the forefront how immediately you start scrolling and without even noticing it, you go into comparison mode. So the very first thing that we actually came up with as a group was maybe we need to limit the amount of time that we scroll (laughs) as a first step. But of course, as you're dealing with that and you're noticing the comparison, again, awareness is the doorway to change. So when you become aware that you are actually falling into the comparison trap, now you have a choice point where you can actually shift into a place of recognizing I'm comparing myself to something that I'm seeing on social media, for instance. I actually, if I'm going to be really honest with myself and utilize self-compassion, what's actually true here is I don't know that person. I also don't even have any context of when that picture was taken or how it was posted. It's really just one snap of of somebody at some place in their life. And also it's their life and I'm living my life. So it's about recognizing that we're, we're not living someone else's story. We're living our own. And when we come back home to self, we say, okay, so what's a value to me? What are my values? And what are the actions that I want to take that's in alignment with that? And again, utilizing that kindness, it's, it's learning to speak to oneself with not just, um, compassion, but every morning, you know, how are you talking to yourself when you get up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror? What's the first thing that you're saying? Pay attention to that too. Become aware of what that self-talk is first thing in the morning and start taking those steps to shift it step by step. It's not, you know, we don't come into this thing and say, oh, this is how I am. So let me just, I'm going to change it overnight. It's one step at a time because small steps will compound to create the major shifts. Do you teach your clients to do mirror work and to look in the mirror and say kind things to themselves? Yes. I absolutely believe in mirror work because what I have realized is that we as humans tend to not even look at ourselves in the eyes. And so I challenge them every morning, just look at yourself in the eyes while you're brushing your teeth or brushing your hair. And most of them will come back and they'll say, I never realized how often I don't do that. I just, you know, I'm in la la land or just, or I'm not looking at myself in the eyes. I'm paying attention to every blemish I have. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or what, or what new wrinkle popped up, right? <laughs> yeah, that is what, you know, we're trained to do is to look at ourselves and immediately go, okay, where are my blemishes? Where are the wrinkle wrinkles? What do I need to fix instead of yep. celebrating all the things that are beautiful and right with you? Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so what does limiting beliefs mean to you? I use the term false beliefs in a, in kind of 
exchange with limiting beliefs. And what it really means to me is where we have taken on and internalized um, a message about ourselves based on either experiences or conversations we've had. So for me, false beliefs will generally be rooted in, I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. That one I hear all the time. I don't belong. Um, I'm bad is a big one that comes up a lot. Um, Or I'm not worthy. I have to prove my worth. Right. And those beliefs, when they're really held by our subconscious, are the thing that will end up holding us back because our conscious mind will then filter everything through that subconscious belief. So until we're able to recognize, again, I go back to this awareness is the doorway to change. Once we become aware of what those false beliefs are, then we start working through them. Now we can start shifting. And when we shift, now when our conscious mind comes up against something, it actually has the ability to accept new ways of of seeing ourselves and of dealing with situations. So we see this a lot, for instance, um, like with the professionals I work with, it'll pop up in imposter syndrome, for instance, where they suddenly, they've they've climbed the ladder and then suddenly they get to this place and they're like, I can't do it, or they're going to find me out, I'm a fake. And really what that is, is there's an underlying false belief of maybe I'm not good enough or um, I'm not capable of this. And where does that come from? Well, With imposter syndrome, what we're really experiencing is almost um, like a misfire of our brain where it's we're doing something new outside of our comfort zone and it suddenly it triggers one of those limiting beliefs underneath. And so that's where we get that imposter syndrome from. Okay. So limiting belief is a false belief. So if somebody, because this is a, a new year podcast, I know people can listen to it any time of year and we're so grateful you're listening, but we are recording this in mid-January and a lot of people have set New Year's resolutions or created intentions for the new year, but they're creating them on top of a false belief. So let's say that their intention is to meet their soulmate this year, to get married, but they have a, a false belief saying, you know what? all the good guys are already taken. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how would they even manifest their soulmate if they have a limiting belief that all the fa- all the good guys are taken? So how how do you help people dismantle their limiting beliefs? So part of it is um, with that one, actually, I work with a lot of people on that false belief. It's either that one or it's the I'm unlovable. Um, and so with those, a lot of times what we uncover is there are um, unspoken agreements that we've made with ourselves. And so that's where in the unspoken agreements, generally, if we unpack it, they will originate from when we were younger. And we go through the process. It's not therapy, it's coaching, right? So we just go through the process of recognizing, understanding, becoming aware of what what that experience was and what we made it mean. And now we can step into this place of, well, as an adult, what do I actually know to be true? Also, we look at our values and then we start rewriting those agreements because what the what we have to recognize is we have the opportunity to change up our narrative, but we have to be willing to do that work to figure out what has been holding us back and then challenge it. And when we challenge it and figure out what's actually true for us, now we can take the steps to to write the new story for ourselves. That's great. So having a limiting belief or a false belief is kind of self-sabotaging and It is, you know, the beginning of the year. Some people are so excited and hopeful for 23, but they have what I call these saboteurs that are going to sabotage whatever goals and dreams they have for the new year. Mm -hmm. So why do people self-sabotage and how, how can they stop? 
So my take on self-sabotage is a couple a couple things. One, sometimes our saboteurs step in because those parts of us have this intention to protect. And so they have this actually really great intention to protect, but what they're actually doing is keeping us from stepping into that growth zone and doing the thing that we actually need to do to move ourselves forward. The other reason why we sometimes self-sabotage is we do have a a need to control. Mm -hmm. And so when we can control the fallout, and I see this a lot with people who are struggling for that relationship, they'll be dating somebody and then someone goes, I don't know what happened. It just completely fell apart. But if we actually track back what happened was there was a, an underlying fear of this isn't going to last or it can't last. And so then they will take actions that actually self-sabotage the, the relationship. Why? Because then they can control the fallout. They knew it was coming. They're in, they have that semblance of control. So sometimes our self-sabotage behaviors are really so that we can, we have this ability to have some ownership and we know it's coming. So we're not blindsided because there's nothing worse than those life's challenges that come and we are just completely taken aback from. So that's another reason why I believe we self-sabotage. I really like that point. So somebody will sabotage a romantic relationship because if they were really present and loving and vulnerable, and they didn't know if it would end up working out, then they could get hurt. So they would Mm -hmm. rather act out and ruin the relationship. And that way they can be in control and they can be also to go back to limiting beliefs and they're proving themselves right. You know, I'm unlovable. I'll always be alone. All the good guys are taken. So they're also proving their limiting belief, right? While self-sabotaging to stay in control. And I know that being in control is also the quality of a perfectionist. So to go back to the beginning of our interview, before we end it, how can people help? How do you help people who are like control freaks who like, have to be in control of every little thing? That's a great question because I am a control freak myself. (laughs) And the truth is it's about slowing down and becoming an observer, right? We have to recognize what's within our domain and what's not. As a perfectionist, sometimes we want to control all the people in our lives too. And so it's recognizing we don't have ownership of how somebody else feels. That's not our business. Our business is how we're showing up how we choose to respond to a situation and to honor our feelings that we're having and work through them. That's our business. And so it's really about coming back to that really central question. When we want to control all the things it's, is that even mine to control more often than not? It's not, it's not. (laughs) Reminds me of something that I heard in a 12 step. Again, there's three kinds of business, my business, God's business, and none of my business. And most things are either none of my business or God's business. There's very few things that we can control. Like we said Mm -hmm. earlier in this interview, we can control the next indicated action. We can control when we get into negative self-talk, stop, voice it, write it down, talk about it to a friend, and then switch to self-compassion. But we definitely cannot control what other people think, say, do, and feel. And wasting that kind of energy, trying to wrestle people to the ground or do the people-pleasing thing, you know, like twist myself into a pretzel to try to control them. Neither one of them work because people are going to do what they're going to do. Absolutely. And more often than not, we'll lie to ourselves and think that we're, you know, doing the right thing or that we're, we're, 
you know, everything will turn out great this way, as long as we control the things. And more often than not, at the end of it, we're still going to have whatever the thing is that we were avoiding. Most often for people pleasers, it's avoiding conflict. That conflict's still going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. Or even if you go someone and avoid the conflict, then that's a whole different thing because you just lost an opportunity to work on your conflict resolution, or you might've lost a friend or a romance because you couldn't Mm -hmm deal with the conflict. So it's just, you lose either way. If you're, if you're a people pleaser, you either have to face your fears and have a conflict, or if you ghost, then you lose something really valuable, including self-respect. Cause I think when people ghost, they know that's not the right thing to do, even though it's more and more common in society. It is more, I have had more clients talk to me about people ghosting them and it has definitely become much more commonplace, which I will, just say from a personal perspective, I'm not a fan of, (laughs) I just, I just, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I think that being able to at least tell the other person, thank you, but no, thank you Mm -hmm. would be a wiser choice, but that's just me. (laughs) That would you tell people when, when your clients are trying to exit an unfulfilling or toxic relationship? Cause I know you talked about that Mm -hmm. in your bio, you help people to navigate through trauma and toxic relationships. When someone is ending a toxic relationship and they want to ghost because it's easier, what do you tell them to do? Well, with toxic relationships, um, you know, there are sometimes when it's a, when it's extraordinarily abusive, like I think that that's its, its right. own its yeah. own situation, right? But if it's just a toxic relationship, like let's, for instance, say a toxic relationship in a workplace, it's still, it's the professional thing to do to say, this is no longer working for me. I'm going to be leaving, right? You can do things in a very professional way. And in a personal relationship, being able to just state that the relationship is no longer serving is really important because what that does is it also keeps you in integrity with yourself. And when you are leaving a toxic relationship, re-emphasizing your own personal integrity is so important. So if somebody's leaving a toxic friendship, what would you tell them to say? Thank you for your friendship, but this relationship is no longer serving me. Like, how would you tell them to say it? That's a great question. Um, usually I don't give people exact verbiage. I usually ask them to tell me how they would want to say it. But, you know, it would be, you know, I've enjoyed the time that we spent together and I'm, you know, I, I don't really have the ability to, or I, I'm choosing not to spend additional time with you um, or something of that nature. Clearly, as I'm working with somebody, we would, it would be my client's words and verbiage. It's really important that it comes from them and not me. Um, by the same token, I do truly believe in, being truthful to yourself and owning it because part of toxic relationships and what we've uncovered through just looking at them and understanding them many times it is the lack of boundaries and the lack of respect so being able to state what it is that you need even at the end is important for your own self-care wow well this has been such a great interview thank you comedy for your time how can people stay in touch with you um, my website is commonywood.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, it's all with the handle It's Authentic Me. I love that. It's Authentic Me. That's one of my biggest values is being unapologetically authentic. And if you're listening to this in January, I am hosting a really fun event called the New Year, New You Workshop. We're going to customize affirmations and help do some of the work we talked about today, overcoming limiting beliefs. It's on January 22nd. It is 
free. It's on Zoom. There should be a link in the bio to register. Thank you for listening to the Balanced, Beautiful, and Abundant show. We love our listeners. If you could take one minute out of your busy day and leave us a five-star review, we would be so appreciative. And if you want to take a screenshot of yourself listening to the Balanced, Beautiful, and Abundant show, throw it up in your story, tag me or our committee, uh, committee at Rebecca E. Whitman or authentically me, you said? It's it's authentic me. Authentic me. And we will reshare and give you a shout out in our stories. This has been another wonderful interview on the Balanced, Beautiful, and Abundant show where we're taking you from burned out and overwhelmed to balanced, beautiful, and abundant. We'll see you really soon with another amazing guest. And until we see you again, keep your vibe high and your hands clean. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Balanced, Beautiful, and Abundant show. If you want to start 2023 off with crazy momentum, you are cordially invited to be my VIP guest at a free webinar I'm doing on January 22nd at 12 p.m. Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time called my New Year, New You workshop. In this amazing dynamic workshop, you are going to get clear on your intentions and what you want to create in 2023. And not only will you get clear on your intentions, you are going to overcome your limiting beliefs, which would stop you from achieving everything you want in all seven areas of abundance. And if that's not all, you're going to learn my signature method on how to customize 21 affirmations so, so that you can hit a level 10 in all seven pillars of abundance. Do not miss this free webinar. It is going to rock your world and change your life. We've had so many people get such incredible breakthroughs. I had someone even get their dream job while they were attending this webinar. So please go to the link tree in the show notes to reserve your spot on January 22nd, 12 p.m., 3 p.m. It's one thing to listen to my podcast every week, but when you actually get live coaching from me and get to interact with the Balanced, Beautiful, and Abundant community, it will take your lifestyle to a level that you cannot even comprehend. You deserve this time. It's on a Sunday, January 22nd. Mark your calendar Go to the link tree, reserve your spot, and we'll make 2023 your best year ever.